0: Well, welcome everyone to another exciting edition of the Magic Sandwich Show. It's a huge honor to welcome back two of the main players uh, who have been with us from the get-go, Thunderfoot and Concordance, but also a huge pleasure to welcome back, by popular demand, uh, his first appearances on the last show, uh, now his second, back, as I say, by popular demand. And welcome to the show, Hoptar. Well,
1: thank you again. Always fun to be here. Well, uh, I,
0: I, I imagine you were tickled by the amount of public support you had, and... Uh, it must mean a great deal to you.
1: I, I did have to, uh, you know, there's a sense of vanity, right? I did have to read the comment section. I went back a few times afterwards. Uh, it was nice to get some good comments. Um, I would I, I, I believe I was called an idiot several times by some of the some of the gun people who think I don't understand the American Constitution, which was a funny cause to be called an idiot because my comment about the U.S. Constitution was maybe I don't understand it. So I guess that Declaration makes me an idiot.
0: It has to be said that uh, gun control is an issue that um, does seem to create a lot of controversy. Um, it's one that we're going to steer clear of. Uh, I got uh, a lot of criticism uh, on the last show for spending too time, too much time with integral math discussing gun control. Um, and that I should have had more callers. Well, one of the reasons that I didn't have more callers is that there weren't any. So if you want to um, call in about any issue, just remember you can do so about any of the issues that we're going to discuss this evening. Uh, by sending a contact request to Magic Sandwich Show, all one word, all lowercase, uh, on Skype, and we'll see if we can get you on the show. But please do remember to include the gist of the topical question um, that you would like to raise. Otherwise, I'm afraid your contact request uh, will simply be ignored. You can send one now, and we'll bring you in at some stage during the show. I hope. But we do have a couple of issues, um, some more serious than others. Um, we will be taking as our second issue uh, the. Uh, issue of Matt Smith no longer being Doctor Who by the end of this year. But we're going to start on a somewhat more serious issue and to introduce it, who's better than James Randi. So we're going to play a video um, that the James Randi Foundation posted um, last week which is kind of self-explanatory but it's a topic that <coughs> excuse me, Hogtie wanted to discuss on the show and who are we to refuse. So um, Live Life, who is standing in for Joe, uh, hopefully we'll now play a video and we were back in about, I think, four and a half minutes' time.
2: Hello, I'm James Randi, and I want to speak to you today about the ADE 651. What could that be, you ask? Well, Thousands of them were sold from the UK by a man named James McCormick, who only recently was arrested for fraud on several charges in the UK, stood trial and was convicted, sentenced to 10 years.
3: Here is Jim McCormick in full flow on a sales trip to India, a man who, with his genial style and easy patter, clearly enjoys holding court. This
0: equipment and the dog were perfectly hand-in-hand.
3: Today at the Old Bailey, however, the spell was well and truly broken. As the 57-year-old former policeman saw his hugely lucrative life on the road playing the role of global protector exposed for the gobsmacking scam that it was.
2: The ADE-651 is uh, similar in some ways to what you see here. This is an imitation of the device. It has a long antenna fastened to it. Inside there's a circuit board, which is not connected to anything at all. It's a fake dowsing rod. Now, all dowsing rods are fake, in that they don't work. But this is supposed to be an electronic one. These were selling for up to... Are you seated, I hope? For up to $60,000 a piece.
3: And yet he sold these devices all over the world to the police in Belgium to UN peacekeepers in Lebanon until they wised up to security forces in China Japan Kenya Libya and Mexico among many others and to Iraq his most profitable market
2: and these soldiers that were using these devices on behalf of their government to detect roadside bombs and such and explosives of all kinds were using these things, though they did not work and soldiers would be blown up.
3: And what was all this technology based upon? A novelty golf ball finder called the Gopher. This is the product, would you believe, which underpinned Jim McCormick's multi-million pound security empire. A bit of plastic with a retractable aerial on a spindle. For the golfer it adds whimsically who has everything. For his first detection device, the AD-100, McCormick just bought the gopher and swapped the sticker.
2: McCormick is responsible for many deaths in in that part of the world, many deaths. And yet uh, the UK government could only convict him on charges of fraud. And as I say, he got 10 years, but he will only serve five years. Not only that, he made an estimated seventy to $80,000 on several of the deals that he had, and many millions more. He has a place in Capri, a summer home, I assume. He has lots of properties in the UK, and one in the United States. He's a very rich man. He goes to jail for five years, and he will make over seven and a half million dollars a year just waiting in jail for his sentence to come up.
3: In this most volatile of security environments, it's thought he sold 6,000 units. Where hapless security personnel almost comically pounded their feet up and down, conned into thinking their own electrostatic energy was powering the units. But month after month, the carnage continued.
2: Now I trust that the UK government is going to go after him to seize that property. I certainly hope so, because this man is a criminal with blood on his hands. I'm really shocked that the UK government couldn't have done better than it is, but I'll stand back and give them the chance to finish the job. I think they can. I've spoken with the prosecutors in the UK, in fact I was scheduled to be a witness over to the UK on short notice last month during the trial. I wasn't called because it wasn't necessary. The evidence against McCormick was overwhelming, as the prosecutors told me, and they won the case. But, folks, I'm just sitting here patiently waiting to see what will eventually happen with McCormick. He's an evil man. He deserves to go to prison for much longer than that. I hope we'll get some satisfaction on the matter of the ADE 651 phony dowsing rod. I'm James Randi.
0: Quite staggering and um, an embarrassment for the United Kingdom. Uh, there's a few points that I would like to make, but at Hogtie, it was uh, your decision for topic, so I'm going to let you go first.
1: Uh, well, I mean, my first reaction to it I think is best described as just meandering rage, because there's so many things that are wrong with it. Um, maybe I'll try to connect it to a discussion that we had a couple times last week. Um, we would, uh, so, you know, DPR and I kind of disagree sometimes on, you know, when we're talking about somebody like uh, Peter Popoff or, um, her name slips my mind now, the the psychic. Um, that we were discussing Sylvia last week. Sylvia Brown. Sylvia Brown, yeah. And we say, well, you know, do these people honestly believe their stuff or, or are they aware that what they're doing is deceptive? Well, here's a case. I mean, Peter Popoff used electronics, his little earbug thing. thing. Um, here's a case. I mean, for a guy to go that step to take those those novelty golf ball binder things and to change the label on it and sell those things, I mean, there's no question that he knows what he's doing. So, at the minimum, it's fraud. So. Um, you know, there are bad people in the world. I think I think where the real failure here is is in education. Like I find it interesting that that some countries, uh, notably the US, I believe the UK, um, wouldn't participate in this. Strong sales pitches. And uh the, the people whose lives are on the line, the military whose jobs are to, to protect the people whose lives are on the line, they took it seriously and they said, Well, is there really a technology that can do this? Like, remember, this thing was marketed, too, with these little uh, plastic cards that had little computer chip-type things in them, except there were no chips. You can find these reports on the BBC where they have taken apart some of these cards. But you're supposed to put the card in the box, and then, oh, now it's specially programmed for bombs, and then, oh, now it's specially programmed to locate drugs, or now it's programmed for um, people hiding in vehicles, or for wads of $100 bills. I mean, it just doesn't make sense that there could even be a chip that would do that, and when you take the thing apart and you find out it's empty, it's clear the whole thing's a deception. So there were um people in military organizations around the world who would be whistleblowers and say, no, you know, and, and a lot of countries didn't participate in it. But when you look on the wiki page, if you wiki 8651 and look at the list of countries that purchased it, I was going to read the list out, but it's by my quick inspection about 15 countries. Um Oh, really? Just, we're, we're, just, give us a summary, um, if not
0: the whole list, which I'm sure you could run through fairly quickly. Whereabouts are these countries?
1: Uh, well, so there's Iraq, obviously. The um, United Kingdom had it proposed to them, but they balked on it. And again, there were whistleblowers. Uh, Pakistan, Belgium, uh, Lebanon. Um, Belgium used it for, the, for drug detection. Again, this guy, he knew how to spread out the marketing, Right. Uh, other countries, Algeria, Bahrain, Bangladesh, um, Georgia, India, Iran, Kenya, Niger, Qatar, Romania, um, and I pronounced this one wrong, Tuz- Tunisia, Tunisia, I know one. Saudi Arabia, Syria, and United Arab, uh, Arab Emirates, and, and Vietnam. And of course, I wonder, if, you know, which, which part of it are both. But I mean, again, he had great marketing because he would go to a country and say, oh, you have a problem with people sneaking across your borders. So here's the, you know, the illegal immigrant card that you can put into the device. And in another country, oh, you have a problem with drugs. Well, here's the drug card. And uh, it's just stunning to me that, that you know, I mean, it, it's a, one of those ideas that seems too good to be true. Um, but there are no batteries for it. I mean, just all these little things that the science should be so obvious to somebody what would underlie this technology. I mean, I see say video that The guy you know, pumping his legs, right? I was going to say that, you know, oh. that,
0: that was that was almost risible, and it it would be, were it not for the fact that the catastrophic effect of the inadequacy of this machine led to the deaths of many, many people, undoubtedly. uh,
4: It's the greatest travesty. People always ask, what's the harm of, you know, homeopathy or what's the harm of chiropractic? these are life and death things. These are, you know, if it were a matter of finding drugs, it would give the police an excuse to, you know, violate someone's civil liberties, perhaps. But we're talking about here bombs, detecting bombs in vehicles where there's a very high probability that that bomb is intended to hurt as many people or kill as many people as possible. And yet, you know, people hesitate to act as though they're objecting or, or that they're skeptical and you know what are these skeptics ever actually done well here's something that James Randi has actually done to save lives I think that's an amazing thing but it, it, to me it's all about what's the harm this is so obvious that being fooled in these kinds of issues is more than just losing four or five bucks in your pocket now we're talking about human lives
1: Oh, and I, agree. I think no matter what the domain is too, in terms of whenever there's an empirical question that comes up, like, does this drug save lives or does this drug have an adverse effect to birth weights or, um, you know, is this procedure for searching cars better than something else? And anytime we have those kind of questions, there, there is a methodology and, and ways of, instead of relying on our gut feelings or our wishful thinking, um, there's ways of analyzing these things and coming up with, with objective answers. And we talked about it in terms of Sylvia Brown. I mean, there'd be a way to find out whether or not she's talking to her spirit guide Francine or whether she or John Edwards or any other people have some sort of special connection to the after, after world. But people don't want that. They want their, their good fuzzy feelings to, um, to sort of carry them through in spite of, uh, the scientific evidence or lack of it.
0: My problem with that hook is this. We're dealing here not with individuals who are hoping to meet um, lost ones in an afterlife or desire to belief in a spiritual world or whatever. We are talking about states and governments that are actually purchasing this. And it just, I can't imagine what was going on when this bloke approached a government or a uh, defense department and said, look, I've got this extraordinary thing. Um, and no tests were done it it was all done in faith i i do question whether there was some no. serious backhanders going on here uh, the, the, there
5: are two things um the, the first is that these um are usually sort of done on a uh, um what what you'd almost call a herd mentality once you've sold it to three governments you know the first thing that you do when you go to the next government is you say well these three governments bought or and that sort of alleviates them of the burden of actually testing whether it works or not, because they will assume I'm sure that, the right. th- yeah. that the other governments did their job properly. Um, having said that, um, it's still stunning that—I uh, mean, you're right. When you're—if you're like scamming the faithful or or fake healers or that sort of thing, you're scamming individuals, and they—you don't expect them to have, if you like, the scientific expertise to, uh, I mean, uh, uh, like Pogtai was saying, um, (laughs) these things throw up so many red flags that it's it's, um, almost unreal that uh, anyone with any scientific background um, could not raise their hand and say, hang on, are you sure about that?
1: well, well Sorry? just on the issue of the, the herd mentality, if I can interject, um, <clears throat> there's a fairly famous incident in, with health policy in Canada um, from the 60s where uh, thalidomide, um, and of course it was worldwide, thalidomide was an issue, and if people don't remember, it was a, a drug to help uh, pregnant women deal with some of the side effects of pregnancy, and unfortunately it was teratogenic and it caused a lot of uh, um, uh, deformed babies, and the Canadians approved its use because the Americans approved its use without doing any any testing on it. So, I mean, this is the sort of thing that, that you know, countries are sort of wise, starting to widen up and realize, like, hey, you know, you can't just take another country's word for it. And even if they did, like, what, what is the research underlying this? I mean, I, I would hope, I really wish for, I um, go- governments are, we trust the governments with a lot. We give them a lot of responsibilities. And all I would want the government to do in situations like this is to, is to apply some rationality when it comes to spending the 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 people's money right like um when they're presented with this opportunity to approve or not approve a drug or to to make this purchase of this equipment um they need to be able to apply a, objective and rational approaches and making decisions but it seems to me like there's this attitude out there that that one person's conclusions are as good as the next if your gut feeling tells you that this thing is dangerous and my gut feeling tells me it doesn't make a difference in concordances Ted says that it's a good thing, Well, whatever, those are all equivalent opinions. And I think that that's How, the underlying uh, failure under all this stuff. But,
0: but just before I come back to you further, again I go back to this um, this issue. He approaches these government departments, or government, and says, I've got this wonderful machine. Look, it'd be very simple. They'll say, okay, come out into the car park and show me it works. And he wouldn't be able to do it, or if it was, it would be by luck. but. I mean, it's, it's just so obvious that you can test this. You can test it incredibly easily, and none of these people did it. Well,
1: that's what's right? <laughs> mad. none of those guys seen, like, the James Randi demonstration with the divining rods and the, and the buckets with water in it? Like, every, a YouTube video. <laughs> Watching a couple of YouTube videos would have made this easy for them.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's almost the same point that I was going for, which is this device makes big, testable claims. Um, and these are things that um, you know, should instantly uh, you, to anyone who knows anything about physical sciences that if you're going to detect something you need to detect something from it you know with explosives it's usually you know some of the chemical compounds that are volatile that you detect or with um, whatever the uh, radioactive stuff, you can actually detect the high-energy particles and get a signature from the energy of those particles. Um, but Then comes the question, you know, okay, so what does this device actually detect... Yeah, these are the simple first questions. What is this device detecting and how is it doing it? And how is it actually detecting both um, people hiding in vehicles, drugs and bombs? And yeah, these and, and are... They yeah these are the first very simple questions um that any physical scientist would ask
0: and, uh, and particularly sorry particularly as, as he was asking for uh, if james is right between sixty and seventy thousand dollars a shot what was going on yeah um yeah it,
5: it's it's staggering um and the but, but, the thing that I find uh most disturbing of all is that the people in charge of the contracts didn't even get the most routine um scientific consultation on these devices yeah i mean the the, the most simplistic um scientific consultation
4: you know scientists are so underrepresented in Congress uh, of all the professional career paths that people take, scientists almost <laughs> inevitably doesn't lead to any kind of political power, and scientists seem to think that they are sort of above politics. This is another example where a voice in government, you know, not just down at the agency level, but actually in the decision-making uh, a function of government, most of these people probably don't know how anything works. Most of the people in Congress have very little understanding of science. We've got in the U.S., and I haven't updated my, my research on it lately, but uh, at, at one point we had two physicists, uh, both of whom had been administrators for 20-plus years, uh, and one engineer, and that engineer was Joe Barton who is as counter-science, uh, anti-science and, and counter-progressive as he could possibly be. Uh, you know, there's just not a lot of meritocracy in our government when it comes to issues of science and critical thinking you, for that matter.
5: makes you wonder about their ability to make correct decisions on issues like climate change, doesn't
4: it? Climate change or, or healthcare spending. You know they they control the purse strings for research, in many cases, government-funded research, uh, you know, regulatory compliance. There's one guy that has kept alternative medicine alive and legal in the uS. Uh, Senator, I think it's Orrin Hatch in Utah uh, is in the pay of of big alternative medicine, and he keeps supplements and homeopathy and and similar types of things. Legal throughout the country because he's an extremely uh, senior representative or a senator. I think he's a senator. But he he is uh, introduced. He's their best friend in in Congress. Um, And again, not a scientist (laughs) Uh, and not interested in the critical thinking because that's not what politics is based on. It's more about what you can get away with.
1: Well, I would, I would hesitate, to, and I don't know if this is where you're going with it, I would hesitate to say that, that there's kind of a need to have scientists in elective positions, um, that scientists don't necessarily make the best politicians. I wish that there were more scientists who would sort of take up that call. Like, uh, you know, why is it that uh, pretty much every other profession, people want to show up and be in politics? Um, what I'm leaning toward is, is a system of, of mandatory scientific review. And when and, I mean, we do this for some things, like, um, I mean, Concordance, your, your videos have pointed out that our, our review procedures for, for new drug research uh, has some significant flaws. But, but let's sort of grant the underlying sentiment. The plan there is, no, we're not going to put together a bunch of legislators and have them vote on whether or not some drug should be approved for some application. We're going to have a set of procedures by which uh, a drug could be evaluated and reported on. Um, Seatbelts in vehicles. Right? The, the legislature doesn't vote on which seatbelt designs are the right ones, right? They have, um, government specifications on how the testing is to be done. And, and, you know, maybe we need to have more of that sort of, um, you know, government taking up its responsibility and making sure that there are procedures to evaluate these things and a lot less of things like the legislators voting on the age of the universe. You know what I'm referring to?
4: I, I have more, more to say on, how the facts are evaluated. You know, facts are not value-free, and when they are presented by the agencies, with hopefully without any bias or, or um, opinion added, they're then debated. They are then presented. And if you don't think that, uh, say, you know, climate change is a politicized debate, uh, stem cell research is a highly politicized debate, and yet there's very little fact injected into that, and the people arguing the issues have very little understanding of the underlying science. And I, I think the lack of scientific knowledge on the part of policymakers, even though they are fed a certain amount of information, now it all has to come from a groundswell, from, from the, what do you call it, the um, uh, grassroots level. You have to have better education. People have to understand what the issues really are in order to vote intelligently Maybe the, the bigger question, maybe what we should be asking is, why do we keep electing rich, white, lawyer, men? Um, why, why is our, our representation so lopsided? Um, it would be nice to have a little diversity of background included, and some of that diversity needs to be a, a bit of a meritocracy, people who understand the issues on which they are making decisions.
2: Well, well um, That would
1: normally be my opening to make fun of the Americans, except I'll point out that in uh, my province for a number of years we had an advanced education minister who was a high school dropout and a national science advisor to the cabinet who was uh, uh, a creationist. So, you know, I'll be...
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to introduce the first caller because it's kind of related. Um, he wants to talk about why people believe in science, but as I bring him in, uh, if I can multitask, uh, I'll seek to do so. Um, the, in relation to the um, money that um, this person made by selling these machines, it's perfectly correct to say that there is a system in place that uh, comes under the Proceeds of Crime Act, uh, and I fully anticipate that, I can't remember his name, that the person who sold him however much money he made as a result um, will be under um, uh, a claim by the prosecution for recruitment uh, recoupment uh, and, I suspect it's likely. The second criticism was that he only received a 10-year sentence of which he'll serve five. Um, I think if my reading of the reports is correct, if um, he received the maximum sentence, unfortunately what I'm not aware of is what he was actually prosecuted for, so I can't check that. Um, but this was not a, uh, a candid prosecution. A lot of time and effort had been spent in doing it, and I assume that the prosecutors have uh, rightly identified the appropriate charges him to be uh, prosecuted under, but uh, as I said, in a limited time, I had to try and find out what, what they were. I wasn't able to do so, but um, hopefully, our first caller is going to sort of like follow on from this, which is uh, I think the topic is why people believe in pseudoscience. Michael, are you with us?
6: Um, hello? Hi. Um, um, yeah, um, really, what I was thinking was um, from the problem with pseudoscience is what I'm thinking. Is, uh, for example, with homeopathy, um, people say it's bringing up. Um, hang on, can I be heard? All right, here, my volume's gone off. Yeah, we hear
0: you fine. Correct.
6: Oh yeah, sorry, my my volume's off now. Anyway, as I was saying, um, what I'm confused by is why people believe in things such as like homeopathy, when there's lo- all these red flags, but for some reason. They seem to think the more evidence there is, the less likely it is to be true, because somehow that means, I don't know, a clinical trial, for example, isn't a sign that it's evil corporations trying to take away, trying to take away these magical cures. Well,
5: I mean, I think one of the things there is um, that people are asked to make these uh, decisions, and it's very easy to... And indeed it's true, there is actually a conflict of interests with many of these big drug companies um, and there are cases where when there has been a conflict of interest, like say for instance with big tobacco, um, where they have essentially tried to disinform people um, to continue making the profits. Um, the thing is though, I think that's it, that's a relatively, it, it's, it is a factor, but it's a relatively minor factor, especially when you consider um, drugs. And there are people on the panel here who know far more about the details of that than I. Um, but I think it's actually very difficult to um, try and manipulate stuff like that. And if you do get caught doing it, there was some guy recently um, who was caught um, essentially faking his results for a drug company, and he went to jail for a... For a oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: I can't remember the guy's name. He was uh, he was actually a professor of psychiatry. Uh, I don't think it was... Uh, if, if I'm thinking of the same thing you're thinking of, I don't think it was directly related to clinical trials. It was more a factor. and if, if I recall correctly, it was at Harvard, uh, that he had basically invented 90% of his research, uh, you know, up to and including... Uh, you know, survey results and uh, fabricating whole cloth uh, of of psychiatric um, research to the point where he just basically sat in his office and (laughs) wrote the paper, right, uh, with certain assumptions of what the data would be. And you think these kinds of things are supposed to be caught by peer review, but who has time to replicate, especially in, in certain fields like psychiatry, would um, be very hard to replicate those kinds of results because you'd have a whole new public population, you'd have to gather a, a giant cohort, it would be virtually impossible to replicate and I think that guy was, was exploiting that. Maybe you're talking about a different person but there are plenty of cases of scientific fraud that perpetuated for some time and then eventually the person gets caught in a lie uh, and there's been a big rise in journal retractions and, and papers being retracted in the last five years to the point where it's it's more than uh, five times what it was, say, in 2000 today. Uh, and it's not evenly distributed. There are certain people who are serial uh, scientific misconduct. Uh, one of the most common frauds is publishing the same research multiple times in m- multiple journals with a slightly different title or a slightly different uh, write-up, like plagiarizing yourself multiple times to inflate your publication record. Um, There was one guy that had, I think, the same paper published six different times. Um, Those kinds of things do happen.
5: Yeah, I mean, some of that sort of skirting the line, um, as in, you know, if they put in a little extra every time, I I know very few people who haven't had some element of replication like that in their work. I mean, I I think you're right that there are people who basically do it wholesale.
7: Right. Right. And the the, the more the pressure increases on researchers...
1: Go ahead. Sorry,
4: no, go ahead. The more the pressure increases, right now the pay line basically... I think it's somewhere around six to seven percent of all the grants that are submitted to the NIH are funded. And to give you some perspective, it used to be when I when I took my current position, it was it was around 26 to 25 percent, and that's down even further. So we're talking about one out of every 16 or so grants that are submitted. These are, you know, full documents, multi-page uh, submissions of research intended. Only six percent of those getting funded means that people are much more desperate uh, to appear productive. You know, I've put out all these papers. If you can take one small study and turn it into three papers, you know, it looks it looks much better to a grants committee.
1: Yeah, and that's and what the, I the, the, to confess the, to. I've done it a number of times. Where uh, pardon me, if I'm going to put it, where, where you've. Uh, taken something that you know would make one sort of meaty paper and then instead write a paper that's like, oh, a typology of something or other that, that might be used for some sort of research and then another paper that's that research using this other typology and you, you reference your other paper in press, you know. But I mean, that's, that's a, a bit of a, I mean, that, that speaks to kind of the strange way that we evaluate the merits of of uh, scientists and their labs and and uh, and their applications for funding and whatnot, sort of far apart from somebody who just completely you know engages in in scientific fraud. And um, the 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 problem I see is is the reliance on peer review. I mean, the peer review process doesn't really go any distance to uh, vetting the the quality of the underlying research. I mean, they they, they sort of assess. Is the design appropriate to answer the empirical questions as stated? Is the background sufficient to bring readers up to speed on, on the topics being discussed? But they, they don't actually sort of peer review goes no distance towards policing the quality of the research itself. You know, what, they're, they're, peer review is reviewing the paper, not reviewing the actual underlying study. So.
4: We, we, we should talk about real briefly how how peer review. It just the the broadest possible strokes. You, you write up a manuscript um, with all your data and everything. You submit it to an editor, and the editor farms it out to a, a number of your Usually, you're basically your competitors. Other people in the same type of field. Usually, not directly your competitors. That's considered a uh, bad, bad, bad uh, peer reviewer. But, um, that paper then goes out to them. They make anonymous comments on it, uh, and then evaluate its merit. Grant proposals work very similarly. There's a committee, basically, that, that handles extramural grant review. But the point is, the paper that comes out has been reviewed and only the editor of the journal knows who actually read and made the comments and gave the scores. So one suggestion, and I think it's one of the best ideas I've heard to improve peer review, is to have the names of the peer reviewers appear at the top of the paper, Uh, basically as this paper was reviewed by so-and-so and so-and-so and and was cleared for publication. And that way, papers that are retracted um, reflect badly on the researcher, but they also reflect badly on the peer reviewer. Uh, that puts a little more skin in the game for the people that are reviewing the research.
6: Michael? Um, yeah, um, what I've noticed really about, um, pseudoscience is really how, um, with people we believe in the Bible. Um, the same people who will tell you that evolution can't be true because it goes against the Bible will believe in no cosmic chakra energy fields. Uh, what what you think about that.
0: So, did I ask what?
6: I don't know, what a, cosmic chakra energy fields is one of the things that they're talking about.
0: Crystal healing.
6: Yeah, right, the crystal the, healing.
0: <laughs> the power <laughs>
4: of uh, magical springs.
0: I was, I was reading earlier, um, and this brought up our previous show when we were talking about Sylvia Brown, Leviticus 20, 27 says that you must put a sorcerer or a wizard or whatever well, to death, by stoning, obviously. Um, in fact, it might be more hideous for a, a sorcerer. Does someone who talks to that—is is that not someone who is a
4: sorcerer? See, she cloaks herself, though, in religious mumbo jumbo. You know, she she claims that she is chosen by God, that she's got received a religious revelation. Because I'm sure that came up in her early meetings of how are we going to bilk people out of all their money, or um, <laughs> well, more likely, she rationalized as she went along. You know, I how do I how do I appeal to religious people? And so she she added a lot of religious mumbo jumbo, as has been previously pointed out umpteen times. Most religious people have never read their own holy book, right? They they don't pay attention to the scriptures that are inconvenient to them, right? No one's no one in the first world at least is just running around worrying about sorcerers. And in the third world, it's a little different, the developing world. Um... But I, I think that Actually. it's not an issue. There's, there's a term okay. that I want to bring out. It's called crank magnetism. And that is the idea that if you have a, a crank with one crazy idea, other cranks will support them. Other people who people who believe in homeopathy feel the need to support people who, uh, say this Brzezinski guy, right? You get all these, you know, crunchy granola homeopathy crystal healing people. Supporting Brzezinski, who's just using a, a chemotherapy that is not a, not very effective, but the alternative medicine people are still supporting him, right? It's this crank magnetism. They, they attract other cranks to themselves.
0: Thunder, I think you wanted to say something.
5: Uh, no, it was just a completely diversionary point when you brought up that Leviticus says that if you come across a wizard, you must stone them
0: yeah Le, 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 sorry leviticus twenty twenty seven I think I might still have it open um i do so, so now no. a man also or a woman that hath a familiar spirit or is or that is a wizard shall surely be put to death they shall stone them with stones their blood shall be upon them um
5: right yeah 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 that that that's go. it so so what do you do if you get marooned? On a desert island with no stones and a wizard.
0: I'm sure the Torah. On will that tell us. bombshell, I'm going to move on from this topic. Uh, Michael, thank you very much indeed for your call. Uh, you can love sand, um, yeah. <laughs>
5: well, I, I was thinking wait for a very severe wind and uh...
6: <laughs> coconut them to death. <laughs>
0: Michael, before before
6: I cut you yeah, off, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'm what well, I was always confused by cranks is though, um, when people seem to believe what they say. They seem to be completely shut off from all actual medicine from that point on, and everyone understood that.
0: So we're going to we're going to uh, move on to a topical, yet totally different issue. Uh, I suspect with this caller, Yuri, since he's joined us. Are you with us, sir? Yep, I am. We can hear you loud and clear. What have you
7: got? All right, good. Um sorry to sort of bring on to sort of quite somber, sad topic, uh, amongst all this stuff, but uh I was just wondering what do people um like you in the UK and others in the US make of the recent Woolwich attack, um and whether it was more sort of uh uh, I guess socially, politically motivated, or was it more religiously motivated? Is my central question, essentially.
0: Let me answer this first, if I may, because I've actually, uh, earlier this afternoon, quite by chance, I have to say, um, been uh, reading a paper about this. Um, my view is this that it would be quite wrong to try and extrapolate too much um, about the behavior of. Uh, uh, the normal Muslim person, if you can put it in that way, but by the actions of the two people who were quite clearly not acting in a rational way, um, who had um, been radicalised, although I'm not particularly fond of that expression, but being, being radicalised, I would put it this way, that undoubtedly they probably would not have been able to be radicalised in that way had they not been a religious element to it. but. What you will recall is a couple of things that were said particularly by one of these people shortly after the atrocity and if if people are not familiar with it, we can explain the details of it. Um, This person who was born in this country clearly did not think that this was his country and referred to the atrocities committed by uh, US and British forces in um, the Middle East uh, and referred to those countries as our country. So how it comes about that someone is radicalised in that way I think is a very important issue. And if we ignore the causes of that, um, then it's only going to happen time and again. I can't remember the exact number of people who are Muslim in this country. Undoubtedly, the majority of them lead a perfectly peaceful, law-abiding life. They um, read and put their faith in the same religious book, the Quran, as these two. Did. To say that Islam is thereby uh, or or is uh, inherently violent and whatever is to say no more, in my view, than the Bible is inherently violent, bigoted, and discriminatory. What has happened, in my view, is that those who call themselves Christian and call themselves followers of the the Bible have actually moved on. Society, the society in which they have lived, has moved on. And they, they, are, dropped, you, they have dropped the nasty aspects of that which is written in the Bible. Islam may be the, a couple but, but hundred but years behind. Hang on a second. Islam may be a couple hundred years behind, but there are an awful lot of Muslims leading um, pers- perfectly peaceful, law-abiding lives in this country, and that is why I think there is a danger to, that's to a knee-jerk reaction.
5: That's not the question. It's the propensities. Right. What is the propensity? I mean, you say it yourself in many ways that Islam is a few hundred years behind Christianity in sort of dumping the, uh, some more barbaric elements. That was more or less what you said, John?
0: Yeah? It, it was exactly what I said, yes.
5: Right. So, I- Islam does have a higher propensity to, um, if you like, feel people who will do things like this than Christianity.
0: Uh, Islam has a high propensity to discriminate on grounds of homosexuality and um sexuality and against women in general. I cannot think of a Muslim country in which I would be happy living because of that level of discrimination, undoubtedly. I will go that far, but I will not go as far as to say that all Muslims are not um, people. No, um
5: yeah, but uh, but but that's uh, but you would you would go so far to say that Islam is a great effect for determining. Um, uh, uh, violent behavior in Christianity.
0: No, I would say it is now. But Christian, I mean, look back only a few hundred years at the atrocities that were done. Yeah, no, and no, I, I, God. no, I, 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 okay? So I don't yeah. think you can say, well, the, the Bible's much better now than the uh, Quran is. No, they're both terrible books, which if followed to the letter, or, sorry, to a particular but, but, interpretation but you are. Letter, we, we don't care to about atrocity, the positive we
5: we care about the behavior of the
0: adherents. Well, no, this is a point, Sandy. You're ignoring, effectively, what I think is a very important issue. Why is it that we no longer have slavery? Let's, look, let's not forget um, how appalling... Uh, the but rest
5: ETR, today, the book is exactly the same.
0: Well, in that oh, case, well, well, wait, wait, in that case what's the, the, the difference? Up. If they're both
5: exactly the same, what is the difference? Right, it's the people who practice the religion that's important. Right. And it's the um, the propensity
0: of their religion to influence. They're both the, the same victim. religion. You've just said that. Sorry, you've just defeated your own point because you said that they're both the same religion and they're both the same book.
5: Yes, but they're practiced in different ways. Yes. So it's the population. That's the point I, po- I made. It, it, it's a population argument. Um, that, um, yeah, I mean. It, uh, when was the last time that you think that something like this happened um, on the basis of uh, Christianity? I oh, mean, was,
0: I'll mean, i tell you, I'll give you one. It happened less than two years ago. It was an uh, abortion doctor who was shot by someone, a Christian, who believed that uh, this abortion doctor was not obeying the, uh, the doctrines of the Bible. Right, okay. And he was sorted in exactly the same appalling
5: Manner, as well, no. I mean, the, the, the,
0: this is the thing. No, it,
5: it's a whole different ball game between shooting someone and uh, they they've stabbed.
0: Did they cut his head off? I, I'm sorry, you're the, seriously the, wanting to maintain this point that there's a difference between it. One, you asked me yes, for an example. Yes, absolutely. For an the example, difference. cold no, no, no. murder of an abortion doctor by a Christian. Right. I've just given yeah. you one. Okay, so Now um, you're saying that that doesn't count because they were different manners of death.
5: N- no, I'm saying that it actually takes a far greater degree of commitment to actually cut someone's head off in person than just to point a gun at them and pull
0: the trigger. Of course.
4: No, no, I meant you yeah, point for you. Uh, Yuri wants to respond. Yuri?
7: Uh. Yeah, wow. Uh, that's the first time I've seen D P R and Thunder have a little debate like that. Um, I basically
0: you, you don't you don't know us very well then, we you you <laughs> really often do this.
7: Um, I basically think maybe it was not the best topic to raise, but I think actually, for once religion played a lesser part because if you think um, someone just posted in the chat, it's quite a small community in comparison to Christianity, obviously, two point seven percent of people. And so, I really feel that these people took up a radical cause, and they were probably marginalized poor. I went to Woolwich to actually lay some flowers because I was just near the area um the other day, and looking there, it was quite diverse but also quite poor, and that often leads to sort of radicalization and lots of fascist thugs roaming about like the EDM and b m p
5: well, actually to 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 be honest um I've not followed this case greatly. But, um, one of the perpetrators, if I, I had it right, he went to Kenya to uh, do something. I think it might have been teaching, um, where he was captured by some militant band, um, and basically tortured and essentially came back a different man. Um, that was last, I've not really, um, kept up with the details. Um, but that seemed to be a formative, uh, event in all of this. I don't of think this course. was um, your. <laughs> and, and from the accounts that I was getting off of, uh, the radio. Now, it should be said that, um, in fact, you know about this, DPR, because we, we briefly discussed it. That um, after the guy had given this radio interview about his friend, he was arrested on leaving the studio or something.
0: Yes, he was, but we're getting slightly off topic. Okay. Well, I, wa- I want to bring it back to this point. Um, the, um, I the, think al- the,
5: the, the bottom line is if they were saying Allah Akbar whilst they were actually doing the murder, it's pretty difficult to disentangle the religion from us.
0: I'm, I'm not saying that one should completely remove the religion. My point is that should, one shouldn't ignore the other factors that are at play. And I think this is a question that Yuri originally asked. Is, am I right, Yuri, that whether this was a religious based thing or whether there was more to it? Yeah. Right, Yeah. Exactly. The answer is there is more to it. And of course, and, and I, I began by explaining this, under that religion and the particular Islamic um, uh, way in which it is taught to some people obviously clearly allows a radicalization to allow people to do it. But as I say, I did tell you, I read a paper, I've got it here, um, which was published in, okay, 2002. International law violations by the United States in the Middle East as a factor behind anti American uh-huh. terrorism. Okay? DPR, stop. I'm not going to allow you to cut through me. I'm going to make my point because this is why. You always cut through me, DPR. Yes. I'm going to carry on doing so because I haven't made my point. My point is that I've can. I already had many examples. I was surprised how many more there are. The US policy in foreign policy in the Middle East has. Observable direct consequences of the attitude of those countries towards America. Their behaviour in their foreign policy has been absolutely appalling. And if you ignore this element to why these sorts of attacks take place, then you are missing an opportunity of preventing them in the future. That is the point I was seeking to make. Okay, fine.
5: Um, so I am now curious. You say that they were um, that radicalisation uh, was a significant factor here. Um, how do you actually define radicalization?
0: I told you also that it was not a word that I was comfortable with. But it is one that. Well, but, it, uh,
5: but, but, but you uh, have it used it multiple defined. times, so yeah. they, they were radicalized. It, what yeah. actually makes someone radical?
0: Well, uh, this is an interesting question and this is why I don't like using it. Radical, in my view, I suppose if you are demanding an explanation is that it makes people behave in a way so outside the normal social norms that it can be considered to be extremism. That's just substituting radical for extremism. I can't do any.
5: You th- know, uh, I can't do any. I
0: can't do any better, Thunder. Are you going to address the point that I raised? What point did you bring up? So you cannot ignore other influences. Oh yeah, sure.
5: Thank you. Um, but uh, I, I think what you really mean when you say radicalization is that they're actually willing to. Um, uh, but they're way, but basically willing to kill people of their religion that's um or they are going towards that but they think you just you've just, you've just
0: substituted another definition for a radicalization and my new definition of that yeah. so well, it's just no it's not d- no no no
5: it's not d p i you substituted one word for another i substituted that they're willing to commit crimes one's actually a measure that you can actually um, quantify.
0: Uh, yes, you can. And uh, crimes are being committed by the United States under international law. You don't, you don't seem to consider those to be crimes.
5: I or oh, look, I agreed with you on that. That there are other factors at play here,
0: but that's diversionary at the moment. No, it's you not. This, this is my point. It's not diversionary. What was the thing that the first thing he said after killing this soldier? That is of direct importance. What did uh, uh, Bin Laden say prior to the uh, 9-11 attacks and subsequently in videos? It wasn't what Bush tried to pretend that he would said. The issue was American foreign policy, particularly in relation to Israel and their uh, um, their, uh, existence in Saudi Arabia. Those were the two issues in in statements made in 1996-1998 and also subsequent to 9-11. You can't ignore that. He did not want to say, "Oh, we this is an issue of religion. Our religion is better than yours. We're fighting over religion." But no, fighting over policy.
5: So you actually think this was that 9/11 was partially justified? Oh, for God's sake! Well, that is just the argument that you made—that this was actually that there that by not taking this into account, you actually enabled this.
0: I was not offering it as justification, but as an explanation. There's a difference that I knew you must be able to recognize.
4: Uh, Wow, okay.
7: Let's defuse a little bit. All right, great, good.
4: So I think Yuri had something he wanted to say. Go ahead, Yuri.
7: Um, Yeah, I just wanted to say back to the issue, sort of, can Islam provide more radicalization than Christianity? I would say this is the point where you have to put social, economic political factors in first and then it contributes to the religious, because I'll give you one term, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, that's essentially who ruled the world for the 19th century and a large part of the last century and therefore the people at the bottom could be people colonized, such as those in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, in um, Syria, that region, there were lots of French and British colonies, so they were essentially the marginalized poor people. And that's that's when I don't
4: think of of the Middle East as ever having been especially colonized. Uh, you have well, the Ottoman say, Empire, uh, but even that didn't really include most of the areas in Saudi Arabia. Now, there are sort of business interests in the Middle East, and that's certainly dictated policy, and we've certainly intervened a lot, the Shah in Iran and, and various other times. But I, I wouldn't say that they have undergone undergone the uh, the yoke of of colonialism like most of the rest of the world. And yet, if you were to take a, a hundred of the last international terrorists, I think you would overwhelmingly find them
7: to be Muslim. Well, yes? I'd say it's not. Well, you could say that, but I wouldn't say it's sort of the. Uh, they weren't Yoko but there was enough fuel to feed the fire. There was enough injustice to um, give these radical cricks some excuse to commit atrocities. And
4: There's lots I, of excuses though. The, the excuses are all over the world. You know, people yeah. in the Philippines, people in Malaysia, people in uh, you know all sorts of other places where the people have been downtrodden. All of South America. Dude, they had revolutions. They had to, you know, fight off the Europeans. Uh, the Falklands, right, was the, the last hot war we really had on the globe. Um, those kinds of issues don't produce radicalization. Uh, I, there seems to be something about modern Islam, the, the way it is, and I've heard it presented as a battle for the future of Islam. What direction will this religious group take? There's plenty, I think, in the Quran that you will not find in the Bible. And I would emphasize particularly the discussion of Jews. Jews and Christians are very specifically mentioned and the way they are to be treated is very specifically commanded uh in the the classic Quran. Now the Hadith, I guess, modify that, and I'm stepping on our 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 you know other people who know a lot more about this topic. But it strikes me that there's a lot in the Quran that is not found in other religions, not found in the uh, Hindu faith is not found in Baha'i or any of these other groups that are also representing a lot of downtrodden and politically um, inconvenienced people, people with a lot of injustice in their lives, right? Uh, animists in Africa are not blowing themselves up. They're not. They're not firebombing uh, Muslims. You know, they, they tend to be the, the victims of the Muslims. So why? I why understand. do you think that is?
5: Um, but well, let me just briefly add one little bit to that, which is the majority of the uh, domestic terrorist attacks in America are actually from the animal rights people. Um, so, you yeah, know, this is the thing: there will always be people who consider um, essentially these really quite fringe ideas to be something that it's actually worth killing people over. And this would have been my beef earlier with DPR is. Um, just because you can actually state you know land rights in Israel come back a thousand years as a reason for um, you know committing terrorist acts um, that's um, in no way no ways a sensible justification nor do i think that you should actually be um uh uh you know, giving too much ground to appeasement um, of such an attitude um, in your foreign policy um, so, yeah, uh, where, this, this where, is, fact, where did I mention appeasement or even suggest it? Uh, you, you did exactly. Um, you said that um, this was something that you should take into account when considering your foreign policy.
0: No, it was something to take into, into account when uh, understanding why these attacks occur. Okay. Right, so,
5: um, but that that's essentially um, just uh, delegating it back to essentially where Yuri um, is, which is what is it about Islam that gives it a higher propensity um, to uh, essentially terrorist attacks where other people manage to find um, a more moderate solutions?
0: Because at the moment, they're the ones that. Um, but I want to go to Hobartide, who's been very quiet, and I know they will have a very sound opinion on this.
8: Yeah, I, I
1: kind of uh, I, I resist this idea that you can pour through any of the holy books and sort of tease apart, well, what is it in this book that leads to this approach or that approach, especially when you're talking about something that lends itself to violence. I mean, <clears throat> especially amongst the monotheistic religions, um, any of the old Jewish writings and the Christian writings and the Muslim writings, uh, the Islamic writings, I mean, it's pretty obviously lends themselves to a lot of unpleasant things. Maybe you can contrast that with the Buddhists or something, but I think amongst those three, um, let me turn just briefly to the issue of slavery, because the Christians will want to take credit for um, freeing the slaves uh, in, in the American South. Um, and, of course, a lot of Christians were involved in that, but pretty much everybody was a Christian, so nobody's really swayed by that. The thing that's a bit informative is that the Bible's role then was to sort of support. Well, this is, you know, it's a good Christian thing. It's totally acceptable to do this. I think that when you when you try to analyze sort of well, what's the difference between that group of people and that group of people, the holy books lend themselves to peaceful approach or to uh, violent approaches. Um, you know, one point Thunderfoot had said. Well, we're looking at population differences. And can we make an effort towards saying what the difference is? From my side of it, well, I think it's again, it's, it's education. Like the fact that, like, <clears throat> how do you make a person uh, fall victim to that radicalization? I, th- I think education and, and uh, uh, you know economics, like being in a progressive society, give people a strong inoculation against going these these radical ways.
5: Um, no, I mean, this uh, I think, and have felt for a long time, that Islam lends itself. Um, particularly to this uh, all or nothing uh, approach, which is if you take a broad look at the countries of the the world, those that tend to be Islam dominated tend to be overwhelmingly Islam dominated. And if you take a look at the Christian countries, there aren't many countries that are overwhelmingly Christian. Um, And I think you can actually tie this down to certain things that, are so sort of core tenets of Islam. Um, the two in particular are having to pray five times a day, um, which is something that you visibly do, and so it becomes very obvious if you're not doing it anymore. Um, and the other one is the extremely harsh punishment for people who leave the faith. So not only do you have the strong confirmational uh, behavioural routines, uh, what do they call? You know the things that build up uh, responses, conditioned responses, um, for actually staying in the religion. Uh, you also have a big stick for stopping people leaving, which is the harsh punishment for apostates. Um, and I think that's the reasons why it, um, you know, it becomes very difficult if you get a market dominance of such a religion to actually change. Um, whereas with Christianity, it's been far more plastic. There, is, there are none of these. You, you don't have to show your faith five times a day, and you don't have very severe penalties for leaving.
1: Right. Well, I'm, I'm not sure I if we're agreeing on this, and it seems like we might be, but again, the distinction I'm drawing here is when you point to those requirements, like you say, well, here's a... Here's an Islamic country that runs things this particular way, and you mentioned the five times a day we certainly shouldn't go unmentioned that women are completely excluded from a lot of leadership and educational roles and whatnot. Well, again, you're talking about the uh is that particular Islamic nature and that Islamic country you're talking about the Muslim people um whereas we're not it's only tangentially related to uh Quranic issues. It's the same thing. You can talk about the way a group of Christians run a town, or, or a state, or a country, um, and still somehow be apart from what the from what is biblical. Um, uh, I mean, I not know, both groups are picking and choosing from their holy books, and you can pick and choose to be one way or another. So I agree that Islamic right. so, cultures are different from Christian cultures, that, but not because of their books.
5: So this is, I see, essentially a rights problem. Um, so if you get a religion with properties like um, the Mormons they also have a very strong element of including people uh, um, and making them display their faith and they also yeah. have very strong penalties for people who leave and if you take a look at the Mormon populations they tend to be very much all or nothing yeah. you know? um, and uh, I, I think that those are properties that you find more in Islam than in other religions and this is one of the reasons why I think it's more resilient to change than other religions.
0: Concordance?
4: I, you know, I've I read through the Quran and I've read through the Bible and, and it's probably my own bias, but I see a lot in the Quran that I find more disturbing uh, with with specific references to how to um, conduct a war against non-believers, how non-believers should be treated. And I don't see the same thing in the Bible at the same time. Um, the data does somewhat go against my position, and that's um, I, I'm, I'm basing this on the blog is called Dwindling in Unbelief, but you can go to the Skeptics annotated Quran. Uh, And there's a question near the top that says, which is more violent, the Bible or the Quran? In terms of total cruel or violent passages, there are about twice as many in the Bible. But I think the difference is that in the Bible, most of those cruel and horrible things are being done by God. In the case of the Quran, the commandments seem to be about people doing these things to each other. Um, The other thing, and I was going to give it as a challenge, is to try to think of another religion, any religion, uh, where the clerics or the religious uh, scholars and authorities actually preach violence from their pulpit. I I couldn't think of one.
0: I suspect such such examples probably did exist uh, from Christian pulpits some years ago, I have no Middle doubt Ages, about it. right? Yes, and this There's is the, the Middle point. Ages. This is, I have to say, this is yeah. the point, a decision I made uh, in my very opening rant. Yeah, I don't. Thank
7: agree.
0: you.
4: Um, but the, the point is that modern Islam, as it is practiced, is in a is in a state of crisis, and there is a path in, before them to continue along that. Existing violent path and the the world of Islam as I can see it is split into these secular peaceful modern Whatever viewpoints and then you've got these ridiculous radicalized fundamentalists and again You don't have that dichotomy in any other of the current world religions And I will concede that it's as though they're lagging behind But I don't consider that an excuse in any way shape or form. I still think Islam has some characteristics about it as it is currently practiced that we would have to go back 600 years to see the same kind of behavior in other religions. Um, you know, I don't think Buddhists were ever fundamentalist and violent. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I don't know my I, history I, that. I, well. I don't
0: think you do. I'm d- I don't, but I remember this coming up in uh, an episode of the Gin and Tonic show. Um, and Almighty Atisma gave a very good account of how Buddhists were incredibly violent in the past. Uh. So, I think you've got to be a bit cautious. Anyone who is using Buddhists as an example, unfortunately, I can't explain why, but I know it it is a sort of myth that Buddhists are all peaceful. Yuri, we're going to come back to you and then I think we're going to move on. Um, One very
7: yeah, quick point
5: Buddhist, yeah, not Jains. Jains were never violent.
7: Um, I think with the Buddhists, there was, I can't remember for the life of me, well, was it maybe it's, I read it in the Independent, there was some uh, article where i think in southern asia there's some sort of sectarian violence but anyway um involving Buddhists quite heavily but anyway my point i wanted to raise is that i think thunder mentioned it maybe is that islam doesn't really have uh one big faction of its ruling sort of the larger uh majority of muslim countries or an appropriate power-sharing Agreement like you used to have with Northern Europe, Protestant, Southern Europe, Catholic mostly. And if you look at, say, the Syrian civil war, it is quite sectarian. And I recently read that on the rebel side, the Sunni side, they called for jihad against these, you know, Shia devils and so on, um, because the government is backed by Iran, which is Shia. So it's almost, maybe not in the technicalities and nuances, but almost like the 1500s, 1600s of religious wars in Europe. And so I think this um, radicalisation comes out of this partly of just the fact that each side needs to be more radical to win against the other, other, and that can have its sort of fallouts and consequences. That's all I really wanted to raise.
0: Thank you very much, Yuri. I am going to move on. Um, I think this... Um, line of conversation is going to continue to to a degree, though, with our next although um only initially, and then we will have some new topics, I suspect. But um, Syria is a very interesting place where um, there are uh, alignments being made from the most extraordinary um, sides, uh, and if you look at it in detail. Uh, I think it boils down to a disagreement between different denominations of uh, Islam much like you have. The same in uh, Christian uh, denominations yeah. and uh, history it's of long wars on Northern Ireland between the Catholics and the Protestants and whatever. So I think
7: the three musketeers, there was a line, uh, why did we fight them? They, said that they say their prayers in French, we say them in Latin. Pretty much it. Uh,
5: uh, to which Porthos replies, my, my my dear Porthos, what do you think religious wars were all about?
0: And as uh, uh, Hitchens so wonderfully uh, said to Tony Blair in their debate, when Blair was saying that he was working hard to cure this religious divide, and Hitchens came up and said, well, where does the religious divide come from? Kirk, Kirk, sorry, Curvy, are you with us? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, perfectly. I think you had a different topic, but you wanted to say a quick thing about the Buddhists.
8: Well, I was just, I remember the Gin and Tonic show as well, and I think it was the Tibetan monks that they were talking about, and they said, I, I can't remember exactly, but it was to some degree uh, genital mutilation and sacrifice, I believe, were the two things that, that they really did. So it wasn't necessarily violence against non-Buddhists, but it was more of uh, violence against their own their own people. Um, but I just wanted to touch on, on three topics. I'm usually quite concise, so I should be able to go through them pretty quickly. Well, um,
0: um, I've got no problem with three topics, but let's deal with them more to this time. What's the first one? All
8: right. Very well. Uh, the Oklahoma tornadoes that happened, uh, recently, there was two mile wide tornadoes. So not two miles wide, but two one mile wide tornadoes. Um, and they were only 11 days apart from each other. And so, Normally, I wouldn't want to politicize uh, sort of like natural disasters like this, but I think it's it's I was watching a local news station for from Oklahoma uh, on a stream. And during it, they interviewed one of the people that were living in Oklahoma. And the person in Oklahoma said that this was a sign of the end times. And I think that that's really central to what the harms that religion does. Um, I, I well, think let's that. Let's
0: pause there. Let's pause a second. Who wants to go first on how many times we've heard about the end times in religion? Oh,
5: let let me just say that if you're in the path of one of those things out of doors, it is the end times.
0: (laughs) Um, There were two two channels that, uh, uh, or websites, sorry, that Concordance mentioned um, in his last uh, uh, contribution, one which was the Skeptical Annotated Bible. I'll, link, I'll include a link to that, it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, the other was dwindling in unbelief, but I think there's also one that I will include, which is um, Doomsday Predictions. Um, and they've now, I think, split it up into two websites because there were just so many. Um, there were the pre 2000 ones, and now there's a separate site for those that are just concerned with the 21st century. And there are pages and pages of these things. Um, and I think we've got another one coming at the end of this year as well. So, um It's like a
4: sport, right? It's like a, a Christian sport, guessing when the end times are coming. Every time there's an earthquake or a, a tsunami or anything bad, and they happen with alarming regularity as we cover the surface of the earth with people, you know, anytime anything bad happens, it's going to harm people. Why would it be Oklahoma? I mean, it... If if a, a monkey-shaped supernatural being were going to announce the end of the world, why would you put op- tornadoes in Oklahoma that happen several times a year? In fact, it's been a, a light tornado season so far. Um, wouldn't you, I don't know, make a tornado of blood or boiling frogs or um, insects all shaped like, um, I don't know, uh, um, DPR.
5: Uh, isn't it. Uh, Revelation is there is an insect with a human head or something. Well, there, there you is go. actually one that, of those in Revelation. Or that would be the
4: end time for me.
5: No, it's a flying creature with a human head. Sorry.
4: So I mean, we, why we are these perfectly explainable phenomena, uh, which happen with annual regularity?
5: Yeah. Well, why should why should God's wrath be expressed as? Uh, cold air from the uh, Rockies meeting the warm, moist air from the Atlantic.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we, well, we, do of, we do run the risk of misrepresenting what they're saying too if we, if we make the comparison to like the Harold Camping scenario where somebody's gone through and said, well, I can read scripture and I can make this, this prophetic prediction. They're not saying that these are sort of indications that the end times are coming or that you can pick a time on a calendar when this is going to happen. Um, this is more of an echo of, of Christian theology where they're saying, no, no, the end times are now. They're not forecasting that these things are going to be happening. Um, they're just so married to this idea, very much in love with this idea that, that we're living in the final times and Jesus is coming soon. And it's just, it, it's, it's consistent with their sort of confirmation bias, right? When they, when they look at the Bible and they say, well, this is true, this is true. I read this thing, well, this was foretold in the book of Daniel. So there, you know, and Jesus was the the, the prophetic uh, Messiah that came and and uh, and now look at this part and this is what's happening and they sit down and they just it's all for them about confirming what they see in the Bible. So it's not about predicting that the world's going to end. It is about saying, No, no, this is it, it's happening now.
4: You know, I, I am I'm thinking I'm I'm five minutes away from starting uh, uh our my own religion, my own cult. And we're going to pick a book. I don't like the Harry Potter series or something, or the Odyssey and the Iliad. And we're going to use that to interpret current events in such a way that will be so chilling that no one can deny the truth of Harry Potter, right? Because you can take any book, and if you mine it deeply enough, you know, Havada Kadavra and some famous politician dies. You can do that with any piece of literature. And yet, people are so astounded at, at the accuracy of the predictions where it's predicting these very vague natural phenomena. I, I don't understand that.
0: Well, Concordance, if you, if you established a religion, I would um, very willingly kneel before you and kiss your ring. Thunder. <laughs> uh,
5: yeah, um, Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion. Silmarillion's better. That's good, yeah. That's that, good that really does cover the bases. There's all sorts of prophecies. <laughs> in the Silmarillion. And bizarrely enough, the prophecies in the beginning of the book come true at the end. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> yeah, it's it, proof. It, it, it absolute proof. I mean, how could they, how else could they have made these really, really um, weird predictions that no one could have possibly foretold were going to come true?
4: You know, we're, we're being facetious here, but There is a secret to all of this and that is to decide in advance it's going to be true and then just go look for the the confirmatory evidence, right? I mean, you could do that with anything at all. It's a sure way to never be wrong, right? You pick your conclusion in advance and then you go around. It's an excellent exercise to go around and find all the confirmatory evidence.
5: Creationist research. Start with the conclusions and go look for the confirmational bias,
0: I, I think it's difficult, though, isn't it, when you're trying to understand the uh, Book of Revelation, because there is so much crazy stuff in there that, I mean, pretty much anything that happens, you can probably relate it to some part of Revelation.
4: Well, and especially if you're willing to, you know, drop a few numbers and letters, and you know, <laughs> if you're willing to interpret, uh, what is it, the beast with uh, whatever the seven, seven heads. Yeah, whatever, and you can interpret that as like seven people who happen to live within a hundred years of each other. You know, if if you're that liberal, I think you can. And there's,
5: and there's some great things about you know what Rome rising again will mean. You know, was it the EEC or was it the or was it Hitler's invasion of most of Europe or was it the Russians coming back again or the Catholic Church? It's it had every goddamn interpretation possible, um, and the the other thing that really gets me is why the beast chose the name, the the number six 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 or six one six,
0: which version you actually? Um, well, I have, I mean,
5: of I have, all the surreal numbers to choose, why six six six?
0: I have I have an interesting example of how uh, one can misinterpret things. That's um, just happened when Concordance said you could uh, you can interpret it particularly if you drop a few uh, letters and a few numbers. I immediately thought that he was talking about dropping a few Ds. Um, And so you could sort of like elevate your mental mind to a different planet. But he wasn't, he was talking about literal interpretation. There we go, that's how easy things can be misinterpreted. Anyway, I I know that Kirby, Kirby has two more points, so I think we'll move on.
8: Yeah, just, just to finish up that one, I think it was much more in relation to Hogtie's point in the sense that I think they think that they're not really interpreting scripture and seeing like, oh, God shall send a tornado or two tornadoes. I think it's more that they feel that they're so special as to be living right now in the end times and, and that everything around them that's disastrous points towards that. And I think that's the harm is that they, they see evidence, um, not necessarily saying that these tornadoes are evidence of, of global climate change, but they see evidence of all this around them, and rather than realizing we need to act and sort of stop these things, they think, well, it's inevitable, uh, the end times are here, so we may as well get on our knees and pray. So I think that's, that's really the main problem. Well, can
0: I put, can I put your mind at ease because this topic came up, I think, a couple of years ago on this show. Uh, and I was able to comfort people because Venom Fang X, the font of all knowledge uh, when it comes to Christianity and the interpretation of the Bible assured me that the end times could not possibly happen for another thousand years so we've got a few more generations to go and God bless you Ben Fang X for having that peace of mind and comfort anyway, on that bombshell, let's move on to your second point
8: yeah, it wouldn't be too much comfort if I lived a thousand years from now. Okay. <laughs> anyway, though, uh, the, the next thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, the debate tactics that are usually on this show. I'm not saying that, that you guys have, uh, poor debates or anything like that. I, I really enjoyed the show for when you guys have it, but I find somewhat of a, not really a double standard, but when you guys debate each other, it's really civil. You let yourselves, you know, sort of finish your points and all that sort of stuff. But when it comes, especially to, I was watching the debate with Hans Zordes, so, for example. And when you guys were pushing him on whether or not he would kill apostates, uh, you sort of asked the simple question, and I realize it's a simple question, do you support killing apostates? And he sort of tried to, tried to go around it for a little bit. And, and this went back and forth for about five minutes until you finally got him to say, yes, I support it, but it would have to be beheading because beheading is less painful or is painless. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily the best way, uh, to go about it because I think that, when he's describing his position he really needs to be able to explain himself in full and rather than getting a simple sort of one word answer that's easy to refute or easy to laugh at, I think it's it's more important to sort of show why he believes what he does. So there's a
5: couple of things there. The first is um, that oh, there were two like that which ended up um, essentially with blood on the dance floor. Um and the first one was with Zorxes and the second one was with Saitan brutengate um or Saitan. um the uh the other problem is that if you actually um yeah the the, the reason they tend to end up like that is because everyone is sort of uh incensed by some of the points that are made and um is essentially all beside themselves trying to actually uh, make, make the counterpoint which is, you, you're right, this is bad form um, but the second one is um, a lot of the time these people aren't professional at not answering questions. They will um, if you essentially just give them the slack um, you will never get an answer to the question. You've really got to press them and um, in that sense I think with Xorxes, it actually worked out, um, I think, really quite well. In that he, he, we actually got the guy to admit that, um, yeah, he thought that beheading apostates was um, acceptable.
8: Right. I, I don't know. Obviously, I can't predict what he would have said with or without, um, not necessarily the interruption, but but when you guys kept pressing him. But I, I think that the concordance style of debate, I think, is is far more valuable, where you sort of let them explain their position and sort of show their ignorance and their stupidity through through talking. And so, even if you didn't get to necessarily to the point where I support beheading apostates, I think it would have become abundantly clear throughout sort of his arguments of you know why he supports that sort of thing. And so, I, I'm not necessarily saying that you guys do a bad job debating or anything. Uh, obviously, I'm I have a different background in debate. I debate for, like for competitively um, in Northern California and so it's not necessarily that I think you have a poor style of debating. I just think, especially with the fact that lag happens so often on the internet, it gets really um, disconcerting to hear sort of people talking over each other and arguing and you can barely hear what's going on really and what ends up happening is that takes up five minutes um, of just people talking over each other and then you end up getting to the point that probably would have been made in five minutes if no one had interrupted. So I'll, take I'll,
0: take, I'll take two issues with that. Firstly, the um, format of this show is not a, um, a, a debate style. and uh, No one would suggest it is. Uh, if you're uh, a debater, you all know, obviously, and you have the classical format of openings and rebuttals and whatever. Um, and there can be a number of these and different time limits on each. This is a call-in show, it's not a debate. So I accept that. Secondly, I totally endorse what Thunder just said, but it is incredibly frustrating. Um, to people, um, and I have to say this of all the panel, who have got um, very strong views about certain issues, and find it very frustrating when people will not answer a simple question. Now, if Hamza will not answer the question, um, is um, the death penalty for apostasy uh, acceptable? And he tries to dodge it, then uh, I will keep on asking that question until I get an answer. It is a very straightforward answer, even if the answer to him is for me it is not acceptable then we've got an answer but we, if you don't have an answer then I think it is um, it, it's unfortunate if you just simply move on and allow them to get away with a non-statement um, so I, I do think at times forcing someone to give an answer particularly when it is they that are coming up with an, a, a viewpoint or an attitude that they think is, uh, can be supported that. Yeah, let's find out what that is and answer this simple question. And a third thing, if I may, just very quickly, uh, I do agree with you, and I, I, I again agree with Temple that that was probably one of our worst shows for interrupting people, as was the Sai and Eric show. Um, and as a result of that, we have tried to allow people to speak more, not interrupt, and not um, uh, talk over each other, uh, and also to a degree reduce. Uh, the number of people on the panel, so we do take these things on board but I do think, uh, and, and so also I think it's a very good thing and um, this is something that I have adopted more subsequent to those two debates is to actually get them to specify from the outset what it is they believe, so if they say I believe in God then ask them to define what that is because unless I have a clear understanding I'm going to make assumptions that are probably incorrect and then as you say we end up wasting time So on the whole I grew up here. Do you, does anyone else want to up before we go back to you? Uh,
4: I'd like to real quickly. Uh, if you recall, we had another debate with uh, Carl Lampa. Um, and I felt like that one didn't go as well. And it was much more because it was just, I think, DPR and I for the for the first component. We, we didn't challenge him on a lot. We let him talk. Uh, because everything I heard, I thought to myself, <laughs> let him talk. You know, let him say these things and hear it out loud and let, let the audience hear it out loud. But there's a big gap in respect uh, for some of these people. And that does favor, or sorry, does color the way you uh, interact with them. I don't have a lot of respect for Seitz and Bruggenkate. I, I don't think his tactics are something that deserves respect. And so when it came time to debate him, I don't think we were too concerned about whether or not his feelings got hurt or if there was a, a positive atmosphere in the room. You know, if you don't feel like the other person is arguing in good faith, then you, you tend to adopt a slightly different perspective on you, things.
5: You, you, you reciprocate.
4: Yeah, you reciprocate. The, the tone is, is someone interactive. And it would never have worked, a formal debate where, where one of the requirements is that everyone maintain a, a sense of decorum. Uh, now that being said, Aaron, during, um, the, the Eric Hovind and Seitenbrugen cape discussion, because of the lag and because of the format, I think ultimately became more disruptive than it was helpful. Uh, and Aaron is very good at, at sort of forceful oratory. Um, but anyway, looking looking at the debates we've had or the discussions we've had, not the debates, uh, there's a big gap. If we had someone like Michael Behe on the show, and I'm sure he would never agree to, to come, but it would be interesting to talk to him, I would give him a lot more latitude, not because I necessarily agree with his position, but at least he's expressing it on the basis of something that I can understand, that, that I think is is honest, and I can give him a certain amount of grudging respect in that he has a, a viewpoint that he can express clearly and well. I,
8: I, I agree with everything you guys said. I think the main thing though is that when, what I was more talking about is when you're in this style um, of call-in show and I understand that it's not a debate show uh, but you have certain points where for instance when you ask do you think that you should be able to kill apostates? I think that is not a yes or no question. I mean it, it, obviously it, it devolves into a yes or no question but there has to be a way for him to explain himself throughout that. You can't really just ex- expect him to go, yes, I, I do support it. Because even when he did end up uh, directly answering the question, saying, yes, I do support it, he still needed to back up with a few things like, but it should be beheading and, and this sort of thing. So I, I agree with you guys that obviously it's, it's not a debate show and you don't necessarily have the format for that. But I think, it, you, for instance, earlier in the show when, when Thunderfoot and – uh, DPR Jones were having their little their little debate. Um, there was a couple of questions in there where where Thunderfoot would ask DPR, "Do you?" I forgot exactly what the question was, but he would ask a specific question, and you can't answer that with a yes or no. I mean, it it takes some explaining. It takes you know backing up what you believe and that sort of thing. And so I think it's important that it's not necessarily a yes or no questions that you're that you're asking these guys. I mean, they're oh. they're. Mm-hmm.
5: Well, in some cases, yes. In in other cases, no. I mean, I think if if someone's actually to the point where they say, "Yeah, um, killing apostates is okay," the qualifiers are almost irrelevant at that point. Yeah, I mean, if you want to specify, um, "Yeah, killing apostates is okay, but it should be by be by beheading," it's like, yeah, this is still way off the radar in terms of that. That's just bloody insane. Um, and the other point that I wanted to make um, to Concordance earlier is, you know, with just letting these people speak, um, you have to be a little careful not to be seduced in to, um, you know, everyone sees things as um, clearly, uh, well, um, not everyone sees things like you do. Um, and, you know, we we only have to link up to what was raised at the beginning of this show to realize this. that um, there are people who, you know, you can give some sort of seminar that is this little magic device that detects bombs, drugs and foreigners in cars and you do need to stand up and sort of make the counterpoint, the bloody obvious counterpoint
0: that uh, that's bullshit. I'm sorry, I don't think the the machine ever claimed to identify foreigners. I don't think it had a little thing where you could say, I want to see... French people, French people only, and I've got to jump up and down. I'll bet it. I'll bet it
5: did. I'll bet it did.
0: Hogtie, you've been quiet. Oh, uh, well.
1: First off, I do believe that device did have a card for uh, for like people hidden in vans and stuff, illegal immigrants. I think was was what it was boasted for. But um, no, I I think you know we all sort of identified the issues with these shows um, for running in you know non-professionals and. And and yes, there is a kind of a credibility gap. Um, I I do think, Kirby, that that maybe – I mean, I I take your point about uh, letting people have enough runway to take flight when they're trying to make a point. Um, And I agree that when you ask a question that has – it may, you know, on its face be a yes or no question, but it would require some commentary to really flesh out what the person's uh, um, opinion is. But – but it is, and it's kind of a hard, sort of thorny thing to put your finger on it. But there's there are circumstances where it's palpable that the other person is just being slippery. Just I don't want to discuss this because I know that the other person is going to make hay with my answer. So they'll they'll just sort of slip away from it. And, I, right. I, and can I
0: give a classic example of just that situation when we had Venom Benin- oh. Facts, Venom on the show, and he was asked specifically how by Aaron how many kinds of cat did never take on the art and this went on for about 20 minutes before eventually yeah. said well about 10 sorry I, I, as an example of your point I do carry on yeah
1: but that's, that's a very good one I've had uh, certainly had a lot of those discussions in the in the chat rooms where you just can't Get somebody to, to nail down. I mean, there's a very famous one. If you ever get a chance to see the original debate, uh, the Iron One versus Herr Alberg, which isn't really a debate. It's just a, a discussion on a, on a web form. Um, what Iron One was the previous name of Nephilim Free. And this thing goes on for 40 some pages of this web form with repeated calls like, you know, define kind, define kind. And this, this kind of thing happens a lot and it's not, I mean, there you have a form where you're able to 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 really flesh out your ideas because you can type it out. So there it's 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 obvious that the person's trying to escape it because they've got the perfect opportunity to type out you know fifteen paragraphs if they want. They can't claim that you're shorting them on a yes or no question. Um, doing these things live or in chat rooms is I, I think it's a little more difficult, and sometimes people's judgment might be a little bit different as to whether somebody's just struggling with what appears to be a yes or no question. Or whether they're being truly slippery. But I will say I agree with uh, Thunderfoot's earlier observation about some people being, you know, I forgot your term, but uh, professional uh, answer avoiders.
0: Before I come back to you, uh, Kirby or anyone else, can I just uh, say that we've got about 30 minutes left on the show. If you'd like to join us, please send a contact request to Magic Summit Show on Skype. Uh, we are going to have to finish pretty much on time. We may have just a few minutes to everyone, but um, send that contact request if you're about to discuss any of the issues that we've been talking about. Um, and also, I have to say, Koby, um, you had a third point, which is one of my favourites. So let's move on to that third point.
8: Okay. So, so do you still not think there's such a thing as objective morality? I or certainly do, possibly. but perhaps,
0: perhaps uh, taking my own advice, I should ask you to explain what you mean by objective morality.
8: See, and I think that's the main thing. That's what I wanted to get to. Is when, for instance, you t- you had a video about I think it was William Lane Craig who's using the objective morality argument. And I think the main distinction to make here is that it's not necessarily objective versus subjective. I think it's more the point that he's trying to make. I don't think he would ever say that there is a morality even if humans do not exist. I think that's a that's a vacuous statement.
0: I, I think he does make that statement. That, that is that's what I picked up from every speech I've heard. It in
8: so you think William Lane Craig would say there is still a morality even if humans don't exist?
0: Yes, that's my
2: understanding.
8: Okay, um, so I, I don't would agree
5: on that because morality comes from God and so as long as God exists, there is morality, yeah? And yeah, you know, whether we're people out. are here or not doesn't make any difference to that, correct? Uh,
8: I don't think so, because whether people are here or not, there would there would be no morality if there wasn't subjects to interact with each other. I mean, they well, would become that's, a. That's, happened,
0: that's one of the bugs. Now uh, we're we're, but in, we're in trouble of interrupting you and entering into a, a sort of like conversation we had with Cy and Eric and others. So please let let you. I'll allow you to finish your and then we'll go to Thunder.
8: Okay, so I, I think it's more based on relative versus non-relative, and I think the point that he's really trying to make is that it's not a uh, relative sense of morality. We don't make up our own morality, there is a morality that is intrinsic and that we need to follow. And I think in that sense, not in the sense that morality would still be existent without humans, I think the, the sense that morality is something that we can observe and we can know. So, one definition of morality is of or pertaining to something that can be known. And I think that's really the definition that objective morality would sort of withhold. Um, it, it wouldn't necessarily be objective versus subjective, it would be relative versus non-relative. And I think in the sense of, of non-relative morality, would you agree that, that, that morality shouldn't be relativist, that, that morality is more, it can be determined objectively?
5: Let's take some um, specific examples um other categories where things are objectively right and objectively wrong and other categories where they're not or is everything every decision there is a morally right thing and a morally wrong thing to do
8: um obviously there's some categories where there would there would be I mean should I have a sandwich or burrito that's not a an objective morality that's not sort of a one of those. but and, it,
5: and, and what is the basis on which you make that decision about whether something is in the category of objectively moral or not?
8: I, I would adopt sort of Sam Harris's view. And the reason for that is because obviously as social animals, the most important thing to us is maintaining our well-being. And so to say anything otherwise would be sort of vacuous. I mean, there's no way that morality, that the meaning of morality can be to kill all the humans that are around you. That That wouldn't make sense because then there wouldn't be you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying do you so, think, that, uh, do you
0: think that Harris's description of morality is, is can be described as objective?
8: i I would say so in relation not uh, again, not objective versus subjective, but relative versus non-relative.
0: And this is on the basis that you can make uh, an assessment um, about the quality of human well-being.
8: An, ass- an assessment of whether or not it will be conducive to well-being or destructive to well-being of the people around you that you're interacting with, yeah. In that's how you're
4: defining ethics, right? Or, or morality, sorry. Morality, yeah. I mean, that, that, that by itself is a, is a choice you've made that I might not make. So that's, that is even sort of a relative issue, like... You know, you've decided that your morality is based on minimizing suffering. Uh, someone else might come along and decide that their morality is based on um, some sort of a subjective utility, right? There are multiple methods that can all be used. And again, and I think we're, we're getting back to this whole objective subject debate, which I bet no one is interested in hearing more about. But no. um, you, you really, when you talk about morality, you're talking about people making decisions, and evaluating those decisions and I cannot imagine an objective way of evaluating personal feelings about things
8: well I would say that that doesn't necessarily go into the into the category of morality and and would you not agree that morality uh, obviously there cannot be a moral code that says to destroy everything around you to destroy all humans why, I mean, you're saying,
4: but it's possible, you're saying it's impossible to have a moral code. I think what you really mean is that it's not self-sustaining or it, it's not, it's not going to last for long. Right? I think at that point... have my... a moral code
2: that involves
4: I... murder. For example, let's take the Aztecs. Right? They had a moral code that it was moral to sacrifice uh, captors right? because that was what was required to preserve other people's lives. Was their morality wrong, or did they not have a morality?
8: Uh, I would I would say that that wasn't right. That wasn't necessarily a, a morality that, that should be adopted. I think you can say objectively, otherwise, as a culture outside of their culture, looking looking on to them, that objectively that was uh, not the correct thing to do. And that's really what I'm saying is that you can determine right and wrong from a non-relative point of view. <laughs> I, I think you defeated your own argument.
4: I, as I see it, you know, I can look at them and say that their morality was wrong
8: because I am objective. Yes? No, 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 no not me. That's, that's what I'm saying. We, we have to apply this code of human well-being and conducive to human well-being. That you chose. Don't longer,
4: that you subjectively chose, that you subjectively value.
8: I guess at a certain point, but if I, if I value measuring rocks, not in inches or centimeters, but I, I measure them in this weird way in which two rocks of the same size don't end up being the same value, that wouldn't be the correct way of measuring. Right?
0: Can, I, can I throw something? Because I don't think measuring rocks is quite the same thing as we're talking about. Uh, that's objectivity in a different way. Um, let's say that there are those that consider the death penalty as appropriate for those convicted of murder. And there are those like myself who do not approve of the death penalty. Which one of us is morally correct? And how can we well, say there is an objective morality behind that determination?
8: I would, I would say that there's no way to, to say a overall encompassing statement. So you can't say murder is wrong, death penalty is wrong. You can't say it has to be on an individual basis and it has to go down to, to certain points that, um, you have to look at pretty much everything that's around it. So, if that person who was a murderer is tends to be very violent, and when they go to prison, they make other prisoners more violent, and they sort of create this atmosphere of violence among the prisoners. I think it would be much more reasonable to say that they should be removed um, Re- from Re- that reasonable, prison.
0: Reasonable isn't um, in any way related to objectivity.
8: Well,
5: it kind um, not of only, is. Not only, th- not only that, um, you know, you would shift between executing someone and not executing someone based on whether uh, you can actually separate them from people in prison.
8: Well, well like I said, you, you'd have to go through a lot of different stuff. I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be morality is means that the death penalty is wrong. Another thing is that objective morality, I, I don't mean it in the sense that that you can look at this book and it'll say murder, if you do it in this way, is right. Um, that's not really what I'm saying. I'm saying it's non-relative. That's, that's the main point I'm trying to make, is that it's not relative. Hit, what Hitler did, we can say, was wrong. He didn't. Yep. So it seems to well, I mean, be very dependent I mean, on I mean, who's I mean,
4: doing the observing,
5: right? And, and uh, the
4: victories.
5: you know, what I
4: mean, it, it to. Can, can we say that anyone that eats meat is immoral? Is vegetarianism required for for morality?
8: No, not at all. Because uh, especially with young children, young children need uh, meat to survive, and it's very no. We can get
4: synthetics. So, you know, a hundred years from now, people looking back on you and your sense of morality, w- which you consider to be objective, because you're enlightened and you have these clear criteria will say they caused harm. They caused harm to their environment. Uh, that guy got in a car and drove and burned gasoline. Uh, that person was immoral, and their moral code that delivering kids to school was a was a higher good um, than not burning gasoline was wrong, and he was immoral. And so that morality keeps changing over time as the perspectives and the priorities change. Um, and, and hearkening back to our Aztecs who sacrificed the, their captors, they saw that as a greater moral good. You know, you're saying that you value X, and therefore X is a an objective or non-relative criteria. Um, you decided to value X, and I agree with you. I think reducing suffering is is a worthwhile objective. But that's a subjective choice that I made. There is nothing about nature that tells us that suffering is to be abhorred or, you know, not moral. If you define morality as that which reduces suffering, then by all means, reducing suffering, reduces suffering, right? There's your tautology.
7: Yes?
0: But, uh, this, uh, this is the point that I would pick up on as well, as how do you um, address or, or uh, objectify suffering? Um, and for some people, on a most basic level, um, pain to them as pleasure, pain to other people is not pleasure. Well, I,
5: I, uh,
8: that's why you, you make the distinction between suffering and pain. Pain right. is suffering.
0: not. How do you make the judgment of the uh, person that we discussed about a year ago on the show, Tony Nicholson, um, who was um, uh, unable to take his own life and had a miserable existence, wanted to die, and couldn't do it. Is that it? by by assisting him in killing himself would that be seen as reducing suffering? Would that be a merciful act? Because yeah. no one could do it, and the law wasn't prepared to allow it to happen. Right, so you're I, I starving would say. to death. I mean, you know, these are very complex issues. And when when you when you say, and I, and I appreciate to the degree where you're coming from with Sam Harris's sort of like um, uh, description of what suffering is, I, I just simply do not see it as that simplistic or that easy to create some sort of objective um, relativistic uh, oh, standard yeah. that you seem to be going for.
5: I don't actually have too much trouble with um, the, the moral landscape that Harris uh, defines. In that, all oh, right, you define your metric, which is sort of human suffering. Right? This is subjective. But um, after that, uh, the, the problems that you run into really are essentially the utilitarian decisions that sort of come from that. You say that. Um, the goal here is to minimize human suffering well um, if i can sacrifice if i can harvest your organs and save the suffering of five people's lives such that they will no longer have any suffering in their life have i not minimized suffering this is the utilitarian thing would that well, be not, not
1: necessarily i'm no. going to interrupt on that one because that's that's a thorn that's sort of easily extracted um, and it, people say, well, that's, that makes it very difficult because, yeah, a utilitarian thing, you could go into a doctor's waiting room and find a healthy person that would be able to provide organs for, uh, five people. You save those lives. You kill one person, you save these other lives and, and, and on balance, you're reducing suffering. Um, the definition of suffering needs to incorporate in some sense, um, not physical pain, but our sense of comfort, uh, in a society. So, um, Remember that, that Sam Harris kind of sets as, a, as a, a metric, as an absolute zero, the greatest conceivable human suffering, and everything we do that moves us away from that point is to be seen a, a good thing. Well, how comfortable would you feel living in a society where, um, if you're sitting in a doctor's waiting room, somebody can come in and, and kill you and harvest your organs? So the the you know when you, when you actually put all that into the calculus, you've got one person you're going to kill, you've got five people whose lives you're going to save, and then you've got the millions of people in that culture who understand that they live in a culture where you would do that sort of thing. On balance, when you when you factor those three different categories of people together, I think in increasing suffrage. So, so I
5: everybody. find that a remarkably hand waving. Um, that I mean, let, let's.
1: Um, but you, you could kill the one person, save the five people, and not tell anybody else. Then
5: what do you do? Well, yeah, but I mean, this is this is the thing. You're essentially inventing the parameter of social anguish and saying Mm -hmm. that that will actually change the the dynamics. Um, But you know, let's let's make this a more cartoony representation. That by sacrificing the one person, you can save a million people Um, by you know chopping them up and extracting whatever the cure for a virus or something. Um, is it then moral to sacrifice one
8: person to save millions? No, because by sacrificing that one person, you're creating a culture that's conducive to sacrifice. And, and that's inherently not a comfortable position for people to be in. And that, that creates suffering. I think DPR Jones, um, example of a man that wanted to be euthanized is a perfect example because in his position where he wants to die and he can't, uh, he can't, he can't end his own life. It would be a moral choice if that man wanted to die to uh, allow him to die. And and that's because it's not suffering to die. Dying dying is not necessarily suffering if you want it, right? Only those of us you, who you, don't you want to be, die. You have
0: to be kidding me. Um, the, the people who commit suicide um, almost inevitably leave a huge amount of suffering with their friends and family afterwards. It's a selfish act in, in many regards. So I, again, I wouldn't... I, 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 I can't agree with you that they suck.
8: Well, well that's, that's, that's why I didn't necessarily say suicide and more euthanasia, especially of the example you gave, because this man was too old um, to kill him. Right? Do,
0: do you think his ultimate death didn't cause suffering to his friends and family?
8: We're right, the minimal suffering. I mean, this guy was sitting in a hospital bed with extreme no, pain. he was He was
0: sitting at home having starved himself to death for seven days, uh, developing pneumonia because the law courts refused to allow him assisted suicide.
8: And I—that is a lot more suffering than people. Oh no, my grandpa's dead. That—that's a, that's a far worse situation to be in than. To how have can one you? Of,
0: how can you say it's far worse? This is what I don't understand. You're trying to make judgments about qualities of suffering and whatever, which I—I I just do not see there is any metric to judge it by. Um,
8: I, I again, I guess you'd have to take the entire—the entire. The entire um, sort of picture when when you're deciding that sort of thing so if this guy for instance had his entire family was depending on him for some reason and he said no screw you I want to die anyway Then yeah that that would become a, a touchier subject um, but for, for a person that wants to die and they're in such a situation that they'll likely die die soon anyway I think it's it's not reasonable for us to say that you cannot reduce your suffering because we want these other people to be fine I mean it's the same reason why killing someone is not a good thing to save other people. You, you can't have this thing where... where I, I, I
0: have to say, I, I know that you criticize us for interrupting before. I'm going to interrupt you for two reasons. Firstly, I think that's an absolute nonsense of an argument. I'm going to invite you back on a future show, but we have five minutes left and unfortunately we don't have Tony, we've got Live Life who's streaming the show. He only can give us another five minutes and there's one caller that I want to put in, it's going to be very brief. Kirby thank you very much for your contribution and please I apologise for being rude and cutting you off but um got to move on to the last caller before we end the show and we've got uh, 6 minutes in which to do it so um, as I say I apologise and do feel free to come back to the show, uh, this may be a mistake um, because I'm not entirely sure um, that he's does, this online, mean, does
1: this mean we're not going to have time to talk? about uh, Captain
0: Who or whatever show you were talking about? Oh, oh you're trying to folk up on you. No, we're going to have to leave that to <laughs> first well, well, Was
1: it Was it
5: Captain Who or Mr. Where? I can't remember.
0: I think it's going to be Ms. Ms. Who in future. Doctor Poseidon, are you with us? Uh,
5: yes. Uh, you're
0: just, going to have to be quick. We've got... Uh, yeah, I
8: see that minutes. you've only got five minutes left. Um, basically, what I wanted to do was ask uh, if anybody had any issues with religions that didn't that don't really get in the way of of science or don't wish to
6: impede on science. I have Uh, no uh,
0: issue whatsoever with any religion that doesn't seek to um, impose itself in any way uh, in any other area of life. If someone, basically it's the um, the quotation that Hitchens often used of um, Jeffrey, um, oh, Lord, my mind's going dead. Uh, It'll come to me. Uh, I care not whether my um neighbor believes in fifteen gods or not, it neither breaks my leg or Jefferson who I'm talking about breaks my leg um nor it's my pocket. I do not care one job; it is when people rely on religious beliefs of whatever denomination, whatever flavor um without justification that's when I have an issue issue with religion Thunder. um
5: yeah, I have relatively little issues. The thing is that um uh, for me, the big button issue is when they interfere with science and education, because those are the two things that I think are the um, yeah the biggest uh, things that are going to determine the future of mankind. Um, the, when they interfere in social issues, I have an issue with that as well. Um, you know, like telling people that they can't wear condoms or can't get blood transplants, or you know they can't speak to people who have left the religion or whatever things like that I have an issue with as well, but if it's an entirely personal religion where they don't affect anyone else in society, they keep their religions to themselves, what they do in the comfort of their own mind is entirely their own business.
4: I'm going to say something a little bit controversial. It might be true if we point the finger back at ourselves as well. I think... Most people get annoyed at whatever outspoken atheists for the same reason that we get annoyed at outspoken religionists. Um, just the whole <laughs> sanctimonious attitude sometimes gets on people's nerves and up their noses. Um, if it's something you're doing inside your own head or among people of confirmed this, you know, the same position, then why would anyone else care? I mean, who, who has time to worry about what your beliefs are except the people who come knocking on your door to convert you? Uh, and, and that gets really annoying. But um, what about the non-religious? Are, are we complying with that same basic principle where you should keep whatever your beliefs are sort of to yourself? I don't know, I, I'm, I'm putting it out there to be controversial, yes, uh, but No, I, I, fully, I,
0: I fully accept that you, um, you have done so for that reason, but I think there are some areas where it is perfectly justified for atheists to speak out, and um, as always, it comes back for me um, to issues of bigotry and discrimination, and if um, there are religious beliefs being used to justify bigotry and discrimination, then I think that they ought to be challenged. Um, but if you if you're saying you know should everyone go on YouTube and say oh you're all deluded oh you believe in a god what's your evidence then yeah in some ways I suppose that could be considered to be belligerent and strident perhaps but um, it, for me the justification and uh, desire to do so is is when they um, touch upon those issues that I've just mentioned time.
1: Well, I actually happen to live in a place where religion doesn't get involved in in science education. It gets no traction here. I mean, uh, so um, I think 99% of the problems that people are expressing about religion um, really aren't problems for me because it doesn't affect, at least here, obviously on the Internet, I'm more concerned about it because I see what's happening in Texas and, and all over the place. Um, but you're asking not about that, but beyond that. So I'm less upset about religion than most people, obviously. But, um, yeah, it does, I, I still think, it's a It's a uh, crippling personal development. I think there's a way that it hamstrings people and stifles their ability to participate in a meaningful social con- uh, social dialogue on uh, on morality and uh, and even things like climate change and whatnot. I think when the people have this sort of weird vision about eternity and God and things are getting taken care of and whatnot, they kind of extract themselves from meaningful uh, personal development and meaningful participation in, in in the dialogue on on morality and human future. So, yeah, I'm concerned even beyond the science thing.
0: Okay, um, Poseidon, I have to remove you, but thank you very much indeed for the call. Uh, we have two minutes in which to wrap up, and I want to say thank you and make a couple of very quick announcements. Firstly, of course, you can um, see this show on the. YouTube Magic Sandwich Show website um, channel where we will include all the relevant links uh, in the description to that which we have discussed this evening. You can follow us uh, at the website www.magicsandwichshow.com where you'll get announcements about future shows and who will be on them, etc., and also information about this year's MSF Doctors Without uh, Charity uh, event, which uh, Doctors Without Borders charity event which will be taking place. Over the weekend of the 14th and 15th of September, um, and follow us on Twitter at the D B R Jones. Um, thank you to everyone that's joined us. I'm going to go through um, the panelists for their final words, but thank you also to Live Life 8072 who has stepped in for Tony. Normally streams the show, but uh, Live Life has done it for us this evening, and it is enormous thanks to him for bringing the show in all its quality to you. Uh, let's go um, the way I see them, across the board. Thunderfoot first, then Hogtie, then Concordance.
1: Final words.
0: Thunder.
5: Uh, it was a great show. Many thanks for listening.
0: Hogtie. Yeah,
1: it was a lot of fun. Thanks. For, I'm glad we got some more calls today and uh, a lot of fun. Thanks. Conk. Well,
4: let's round it out with uh, thank you.
0: There we go. And um, Thank you very much to Live Life again. Uh, we will see you in two weeks' time. Take care. And thanks for watching.